0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries, with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Let's have a word of prayer together as we begin. Father, we thank you again for the chance to meet here, and we pray that um, our words would be clear and true, and our understanding as well. Uh, We pray and thank you for um, that which has been uh, uh, received. We pray and thank you for the word of God that is true. Help us to be correct in interpreting it, gracious in applying it. And um, we want to commit ourselves to you this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a heresy spread across the land, a twisted gospel a false gospel. Christianity Today magazine called it a volcanic issue. There are those who say that uh, one writer says evangelicals are swelling the ranks of the deluded with a perverted gospel. Another wrote a book called Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth and accuses those who teach it of defection from the gospel. What is the heresy? The heresy is is that we can be saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, you are teaching a false gospel. Why do they say that? That's what we'll look at today. I want to explain the view uh, and the controversy and its importance. It really hinges on this whole question we've been examining the last couple days of what is the gospel. What is the gospel itself? How do I share it? How does a person get saved? And how does it affect things like our salvation itself, assurance, sanctification, and our ministries? You would think that upon graduating from seminary, the most important thing a person would come out with is the ability to tell someone how to be saved. And yet, this question is often debated in seminaries and not resolve, and people graduate from seminaries with different opinions, and it is just a shame that we have to debate such a fundamental and basic issue, but it is necessary. What I'm talking about is what we would call the Lordship controversy. And in an indirect way, without naming it, I have been addressing it in all of my messages, because it deals with the fundamentals of salvation faith, repentance. What is it? What is the role of Christ's lordship? And I kind of want to focus on that this, this time. And is there a difference between salvation and discipleship? We'll mention that tomorrow. There is a view called lordship salvation out there, and they're the ones who would criticize the view that you're saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ as Savior. Unless we radically redefine faith according to them. The definition of lordship salvation would be simply this, that you must acknowledge Christ as Lord and master of your life in the act of receiving him as Savior. To them, to have true faith or to really believe means that you submit to Jesus as master. I've got a whole sheet of quotes. I've got a whole book of quotes. Let me just read you, for example, a couple of their statements. One man writes in a guide to the Lordship Salvation controversy, a book. He said true saving faith includes in it a submission to the Lordship of Christ. Another, in his book called Lordship Salvation, writes: saving faith is trust in Christ Himself. It is a commitment of self in submission to all of Christ that is revealed. And I have many other quotes there, but you get the idea that faith includes in it submission to the, the Lordship and the mastery of Jesus as the Lord of my life. Now, there is another view that would be at the other extreme. Um, of course, I don't, wouldn't like to use the word extreme, but let's say the other end of the spectrum. We would call it the free grace view, it's come to be known. The free grace view would teach that salvation, the issue in salvation is uh, faith in Jesus Christ. Defining faith as being persuaded that something is true, accepting something is true. However, those in the lordship salvation controversy don't like to talk about the free grace view. What they like to call the free grace view is the no lordship view. And in doing so, they frame the question uh, to their advantage. Because who wants to be known as a no lordship view? As inaccurate as that, I would argue that that statement is. Sometimes though, and, it, and it's clever tactics, because if you can frame the question, you often win the debate. For example, Paul, have you stopped beating your wife? How would you answer that? <laughs> you see, just to ask the question. What so do you say? No, yes. Uh, it, it frames a certain perspective on the issue. And those who, have, um, those who are pro-abortion have learned to do that, haven't they? And that's why they have persuaded the public so far towards their position. Instead of calling uh, us pro-life, they call us, what, anti-choice, you see, and they have been successful in framing the whole abortion question as anti-choice choice choice, instead of life and death. So in some sense, I don't want to concede at all to those on the Lordship salvation side of the spectrum spectrum, that the free grace view is a no-lordship view. Of course Jesus is Lord. Who would deny that? The question is, what? How does that relate to my salvation? And so it, 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 we have to be careful how we frame the question. Uh, I had someone visit the church recently in Burleson, and they and they asked me after the service. They said, um, "Do you believe in the Holy Spirit?" Well, you know, it's hard not to laugh in their face. You know, if I didn't, I would be a, a heretic and I'd be stoned. But uh, what they really mean is. Uh, you know, are you a charismatic church? And uh, and so I know what they meant, and so I said, well, we're not a charismatic church, but we love charismatic people. <laughs> That's what I said. It's like the it's like when someone asks you, are you a full gospel church? <laughs> how do you answer that? No, we have budget problems this year. We're just a half a gospel church. Uh, we can't afford the full thing this year. So you have to be careful how you frame the question, and um, being called no lordship is not fair at all in fact being called lordship salvation is not a term i would prefer to use of them because i believe in jesus is as lord as well the only question is how that relates to salvation i would prefer to call lordship salvation exactly what it is and that's commitment salvation or surrender salvation either term would be more accurate in letting people know exactly what we're talking about. And if they want to talk about a different view of salvation on the other end of the spectrum, perhaps we call it by faith alone salvation. If we really want to be fair with one another. But anyway, a lot of the debate uh, in, has to do with the Lordship of Christ. It has to do with four main issues, and that's what I cover in my dissertation, my doctoral work. What is the nature of faith? What is the nature role of repentance in salvation? And then what is the nature and role of Christ's Lordship in salvation? And the fourth question has to do with what is the nature and role of discipleship and salvation. But today, what is the role of Christ's Lordship? Let's talk about the meaning of Lord first of all. Does it mean rulership over my life, as Lordship salvation would assert, commitment salvation? Um, it's a pretty general agreement by many Bible scholars and, and commentators that the term Lord, which translates The Hebrew word uh, Jehovah, or I prefer to call it Yahweh, it's closer to the difficult word to pronounce. Uh, Yahweh is translated by Lord, often written in capitals uh, in the uh, translation of your Bible, perhaps. It translates, it, it means and refers to, first of all and above all, the deity of Christ when he is called Lord. That is the most natural reference. And Yahweh was more than just a master, of course. He was a creator. He, As a creator, he was therefore an owner. Uh, Yahweh is, uh, under a subset of God as Yahweh, would be uh, judge. Christ as Lord would include ideas like priest, king, redeemer, all of these things. When the word Lord is used in the New Testament, the word Kyrios, Lord, um, it is sometimes used, not in a theological sense, but just as an owner of property or an owner and master of slaves. When it's used of Jesus as part of his title, uh, it, it becomes a title, Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And it is a reference to his deity, pointing to Jesus as Jehovah. There are those who address Jesus sometimes in the New Testament as Kyrios, but it was in sometimes the Bible translates it this way, sir, because that's how the word can be translated. And so they're simply addressing it with a term of respect. But when we talk about Jesus as Lord, we're talking about Jesus as God, Jesus as Jehovah God, the God that fulfills the Old Testament covenants, the God of the Old Testament promises. And so the context again must determine exactly what the word kyrios means. But when we look at the word kyrios, we have to recognize that rulership is just one subset of the many things that God is to us. You see, our Creator, our Judge, our Priest, um, Christ, our Priest, but He can also be our ruler. So, of course, Jesus is Lord. No one would argue with that. He is called Lord, He is Lord. But the question is whether submission to that lordship is demanded in the gospel invitations. Okay? So we want to distinguish between the objective lordship of Jesus Christ, his position, and the, I said objective, right? The objective lordship of Christ, his position, and our subjective response to that. And that's the application of his position to our situation. And to do that, I want to look at, um, well, we'll focus on just three passages, although many of them are involved in the controversy. And the first one is in Acts, a very familiar story in chapter 16. This is the story of the Philippian jailer with Paul and Silas there, um, singing in prison. And at midnight, there was a great earthquake. The prison doors fly open. Paul encourages the prisoners not to leave, not to flee. The jailer calls for a light and runs in. Concerned that the prisoners were escaping, he draws a sword and is ready to kill himself, it says in verse 27. And Paul calls out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And then, the, then the guard calls for a light, he runs in, and he falls down and trembling, t- trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brings them out. You don't want to be in a building, I guess, after an earthquake. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Guess what that word sirs is there? Kyrios, yeah, the, uh, It would be the plural, I believe. It's the same word, but here it's using a more, more of a secular use to show that the, there's flexibility in the use of words, and we have to look at them in context. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? A simple question by a man who noticed that there were people who had something he did not have, who had given up all hope and was ready to kill himself, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is just as simple. Verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. And if your household believes, they'll be saved as well. Not believe and be baptized. Not believe and join the church. Not believe and do this or that. Keep the golden rule. It's believe and you will be saved. Only believe, simply believe. But there are those who would look at this story and say, this teaches that we must submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, because after all, Paul and Silas said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so they are inferring that this is a call to a Gentile jailer to submit to the mastery of Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. What would a Gentile jailer Hear first when he hears the word Lord. A Jewish person would know that that is an immediate reference to uh, Jesus Christ, and they would probably focus more on the Christ part as Jesus as the Messiah, who therefore is Jehovah in the the flesh, in their conception of the Messiah. But a Gentile, Christ doesn't mean much to him unless he's familiar with the Jewish religion, which probably was not the case here. So when he hears the Lord Jesus Christ, he's hearing a reference to deity. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the important thing is not so much what he understood about the person of Jesus Christ as what he was asked to do in relationship to that. The jailer wasn't asked to understand and agree with all the implications of what it means to be Jesus. Jesus, of course, means Savior. Jesus is a human name. He wasn't being asked to, to, uh, well, you need to understand all about the humanity of Jesus, you need to understand all about uh, the prediction of him coming as the Christ, the Messiah. Those would all be inferences or implications that uh, aren't called for in the text. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is simply to the jailer, uh, believe and trust in the one who has the power and authority as God to save you and you'll be saved. If you look at, uh, down here later on at verse 34, I want you to notice something. Now, when he had brought them, the jailer brings them home, you see, and he, and he feeds them and says, and he rejoiced having what? Believed in God. There's a little textual affirmation of what I've just said. To the jailer, Paul and Silas were declaring that Jesus is God. And you need to believe in him. And it says here, he believed in God doesn't say he submitted himself he committed himself he surrendered his life he made Jesus Lord of his life none of this is there only by Jesus or reading into the text so there's one passage that is often used I think without warrant. another passage uh, probably a little t- lesser degree that you hear sometimes in reference to Jesus Lordship is in 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 uh, this verse is actually used by some, when they argue their case for lordship's salvation, Paul, in uh, really in a defense of himself and his ministry, says in verse four, four uh, chapter four, verse five: "For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake." And some versions say, "We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord." But again, where is the explicit demand to submit to him as Lord? The Lordship Salvationists argues that just the mention of Jesus the Lord or Jesus as Lord is what Christ is what Paul preached is an argument that we are to submit to Him as Lord. But if we understand what Paul is doing here in Corinth, he is defending his reputation. He is defending his ministry to a church that put people above, and you know we're siding with people that the, the uh, carnal Corinthians were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. And they had the ministry all confused. The gospel ministry was not about people. It was about Jesus Christ and the message <clears throat> of faith in Christ. And so Paul is saying, I'm not here to proclaim myself, but Jesus is Lord. And we can trace that kind of argument all the way through First and 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I preach Christ and him crucified. I don't have anything to do with your salvation, except that I preach Christ. In 2 Corinthians two two, he says a very similar thing. I can't make known to you uh, um, Christ crucified. And in this particular context, this is chapter 4, in verse 2, he talks about how the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And so it seems that what he's doing is he's drawing a contrast between the God of this age that has blinded the minds of those, and yet he declares the true deity who can free people, and he goes on to say how he can shine that light into darkness because Jesus is Lord, he is God. So Paul's not saying we're proclaiming Jesus so that you can make him the master of your life and be saved. He's saying we're proclaiming that he is God as opposed to the gods of this age. And we're not proclaiming ourselves. We're only servants, he says, for Christ's sake. So to preach Christ as Lord is to preach Him crucified, to preach Him risen, preach Him glorified, and that's to preach the gospel. And nowhere is submission expressed in this passage. It has to be, again, read into the passage. But the key passage that we'll save uh, for the third and last one we'll look at is Romans 10, 9 and 10. I always already made reference to this. Um, uh, wants to raise your curiosity, but this is the key passage that is argued. And boy, there are so many, uh, there's so much confusion over this passage. In my opinion, Romans ten nine and ten that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, uh, you see, there's two arguments they would say here. First of all, you need to confess, and that is argued different ways. Some say it's not just faith that saves you, but it's a faith that confesses. It's a faith that is not ashamed of Jesus, or it's a faith that lives out. Its, uh, uh, you live out your life um, confessing him by your life, or some would say confessing in baptism, or there are those who say confess him by coming up in front of the church, walking down an aisle, coming up in front of the church. So there's many different interpretations of what it means to confess, but the important thing is it's not enough to believe. You have to express that belief in some way, whether it is verbally or whether it is um, in baptism or whether it is by your good works lived out in your life. You're confessing Jesus, and that's what saves you. And the other argument from this is that You confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, not just Jesus, but the Lord Jesus. You're confessing that he is the Lord of your life is what they would argue. Well, let's look at it in a little more detail. First of all, the word confess. Here again, uh, it it helps to know the derivative of the word, uh, where the word is derived from. The English translates a Greek word called, uh, a Greek word homologeo, made of two words that are pretty common, homo, meaning the same, to say this and then logeo, the or the verb to say uh, our word we get the noun logos word to say the same thing to speak the same thing is what the word confess means and so it means to agree it means to admit something is true it's an acknowledgment that something is true so what paul seems to be saying is if you confess with your mouth the lord jesus if you admit that Jesus is Lord, that He is God. Um, but wait a minute, it says, with your mouth. And the question here is, is the confession made to men or to God? Does it have to be something that is expressed to men or to God? But belief, we know, faith is directed toward God. And if therefore it would make sense the confession would be, and also because confession is directed toward God in chapter fourteen, verse eleven, as it is written, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will confess to God, for there are confessions made to God. And then in chapter fifteen, verse nine of Romans, we read, um, the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written. For this reason, I will confess to you among, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So there are two examples from the immediate context that confession is made to God. But what is he trying to say, then, um, here? Well, let's go on and look at the verse a little more. Confession, to me, seems to be a synonym for faith, because faith is emphasized in the context. Chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is in the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 6, but righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Um in verse eleven, for the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 14, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Verse 17, Faith comes by hearing. So there's a strong uh argument here that faith is the context, and when he mentions confession, it is in the sense of agreement and really is another way of saying uh, that they're expressing their faith in Jesus as God. Certainly, Paul wouldn't contradict what he said in Romans chapters three and four, where he argues there that justification is through faith alone. We're justified freely by his grace through the faith that is in Christ Jesus, he says. Surely he wouldn't contradict that by adding some other condition. But why then does he mention confess? Why does he bother to do that? Well, in verse eight above, he just finishes quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30 in verse 15, where he says, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. You see, if we back up even to the couple verses above that, he says, Don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven to bring Christ out, or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. It's it's right there with you. His whole argument is this, by quoting this Old Testament. The Jews were strenuously trying to establish their own righteousness. It says that in verse 3. For they, the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They were trying to establish their own righteousness by strenuous effort, keeping the law. And Paul is saying, you don't have to go up to heaven to find Christ, the Messiah. You don't have to go way down into the abyss to find him as Messiah. It's right on the tip of your tongue. It's right in your heart. What God has been saying all along, just admit it. Admit that Jesus is... Lord. He is the Messiah. And so it really ends up being an argument totally contrary to what Lordship Salvation wants to say. They're trying to say that salvation is not just by faith, but it's more difficult than that. We have to verbally confess or confess by our deeds or something like that. And yet Paul seems to be saying the exact opposite. No, it's right there. Just admit it. Just agree with the testimony of the prophets. Just believe God's word. And so in in some sense, it's a figure figure of speech to mean that you disagree with the testimony of the Scriptures. It's accessible. You don't have to go to heaven and hell for the truth of the Messiah. It is right there. It's been there all along. Right in front of you is what he's saying. And then you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Here there is an acknowledgment that Jesus is God. And to the Jewish part of the Roman audience, this would be very significant. Look, and and he is talking to Jews in chapter 10. He's addressing them in their situation. And to say that Jesus is Lord is to admit that Jesus is God, therefore Jesus is the Messiah. So that had special significance for them. Rulership, of course, is implied as God and the Messiah, but there's no demand here to submit to Jesus as the ruler of their life. So there's three passages that are often used in the argument about the Lordship of Christ and, and kind of my answers to them. Let me kind of summarize with some statements and some summary arguments against uh, the view that's called Lordship Salvation. First of all, we need to keep in mind the issue in salvation is sin. And there's a couple of verses that just remind us of that. 1 Timothy 1.15, for example. We really need to, to focus on what did Jesus come to do. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. And he did that in the role of savior. Now, of course, Jesus couldn't be savior unless he was Lord, unless he was God. The only way he could save mankind was if he is God. So his lordship is very important to his work of salvation. But that doesn't mean that there is a demand for us to submit to that lordship. We are to appropriate or accept his provision of salvation. Chapter 4, verse 10 of 1 Timothy. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. He doesn't say he's the Lord of all men. He's the Master of all men. He's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. That's the role that Jesus plays in taking care of our sin problem. But we need to be careful about basing theology on titles. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ and building a whole theology around that and reading into that all kinds of uh, um, subjective type of responses is, that aren't there what about other titles of God would be another argument I would use he's called the son of God Jesus is called the son of man he's called uh, our high priest he's called a prophet just the name Jesus has implications he's called rabbi uh, if someone is going to be saved, do they need to ge- submit to Jesus as rabbi? Do they need to submit to him as their high priest? Do they need to understand what it means that he's the prophet expected of the Old Testament? Does it, do they need to understand uh, what the Son of God means and what the Son of Man implies? Do they need to understand all of that and 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 appropriate each of the aspects of who Christ is In Acts chapter eight and verse five, where it talks about um, Philip's ministry to the Samaritan, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Well, Philip is preaching an incomplete gospel. It's obvious because he's not preaching Christ as Lord to them. He's just preaching Christ to them. In Acts chapter 13, in verse 8, look at this heresy. 1338, I'm sorry. The Apostle Paul says, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sin. (laughs) Now Paul really has corrupted the gospel. He's just preaching a man. So you see, you have to be real careful about building a whole theology around the titles that are used. Um, Build the theology, but don't build your soteriology in relationship to all the titles and imply that there are certain demands made. The third argument is we must be careful to distinguish between the objective lordship of Christ and our subjective submission. Of course he is Lord. We can't make him Lord. He is Lord. But the question is, is there a demand that we submit totally to his lordship when we come to him for salvation? And again, we can go back to Romans and we can argue that that justification is through faith alone and there are no demands at all made until chapter 6 after justification has been explained. A fourth argument we would use is we say that we must recognize the difference between justification and sanctification. Between salvation and discipleship is another way of putting it. Justification is to be declared righteous. Sanctification is to become righteous. In justification, we have an instantaneous event. We have something that happens in a moment of time when people believe. If someone's at the point of salvation is submitting to Jesus as Lord and making him master of their money and master of their time and master of their marriage and all these things, aren't we confusing sanctification, becoming righteous, with justification being declared righteous? Of course we are. And aren't we asking of a sinner, someone like a pagan Roman jailer, to make very mature Christian decisions that you and I are still making every day? How can we ask someone who's dead in trespasses and sins, who's walking according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit of this world, whose mind is blinded, how can we ask them to make mature Christian decisions about submission and surrender and commitment of parts of their lives. So again, what it does by confusing sanctification and justification is it's getting the cart before the horse. Or really, more technically speaking, it's kind of getting the cart under the horse or putting wheels on the horse. But it ends up being an awfully awfully ugly uh, scenario. Salvation brings us the grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and change our lives. And we can't make the decisions to change our lives until we experience the grace of God. Now, I admit that there are some who, when they believe, intuitively know that Jesus can save us because he's God, and therefore I need to submit myself to him. Some people do that in an instant, all in one decision. If I'm going to believe in Jesus and I'm accepting a new master of my life, that means I'm going to have Jesus as a master of my life. I have no problem with that. But there are some people who don't really grasp a lot of that until later. And as you know, you and I are, are asked to make lordship decisions every day. Where Jesus says, are you going to give me that? Are you going to turn that over to me? That's just what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple. We're constantly challenged to greater commitment. And so sometimes people intuitively can understand that at the point of salvation. Sometimes they need some teaching to say, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing that. Oh, I'm supposed to be giving some of my money? <laughs> I mean, some people don't know these things. Another argument is that the Bible has examples of uncommitted believers. This is a good argument. It's a powerful argument. There's a whole theme in the book of John that there are those who might believe but not be outspoken, like Nicodemus. Or Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple or a disciple in secret. Later on, they speak up. Later on, they show evidence that they had perhaps believed. But not always do those who are saved immediately confess him in the sense of living out their faith boldly in front of others. And so, would we still call them saved or not? How about Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, they were doing pretty good. They seemed to be included in the group. And they just made the mistake of telling a lie. And so they dropped dead. I think they were believers myself. Paul preached to the Ephesians. He came back two years later in Acts chapter 19. And, and there were some who were, still had their sorcery books and they had to burn them. How do we explain believers with sorcery books on the shelves? Sometimes it takes a while to part from our old habits and ways. The reality of sin is that it is tenacious. The reality of Satan is that he is wise and crafty. The reality of human nature is that it's hard to break some habits. And we listen to the testimony of homosexuals who are saved and yet they struggle and go through, as one said on a James Dobson tape I heard just last weekend, they just went through hell the first year, he said, fighting the temptation to go back into the lifestyle. Ask a drug addict who comes out of drug addiction and, and is gloriously saved, does the craving vanish immediately? I've heard sometimes testimonies that it does, but I know others who have struggled. I had a neighbor who was an alcoholic for 32 years and he, he kicked it instantly, and, and according to his testimony, never struggled with it again, but there are those who have their struggles. Anybody who's been a pastor and done any, or ain't done any counseling knows that Christians are capable of just about anything. And it doesn't help to say you're not a Christian. That doesn't help the problem at all. It's it's a simplistic approach. And it puts things in a whole skewed category. But if David can commit adultery and commit murder and be a man after God's own heart, which just shows us that those who know God are capable of anything. I'm dealing with a situation that is just so ugly to me, but I, I have no doubt that the person is a Christian in my church we've had to do some things and uh, take care of it that you know it's the the downside of the pastoral ministry to have to deal with that kind of stuff it just shows you that there's, there's nothing that christians won't do because the sin nature is strong satan is wily and habits are hard to break we have the power of the holy spirit on our side we have god working we have the fellowship of believers and 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 I think people are progressing upward in the Christian life, but you know, sometimes there's the valleys, but at least in in the big picture we're going upward and getting better. I don't think lordship salvation is realistic in how they deal with sin. I just don't think it has even room for something like church discipline. Well, he's not a believer, just preach the gospel to him. would be the ultimate end of their reasoning. And then finally, I would just say it's subjective. The whole teaching is subjective. You see, if, if faith equals submission and commitment and surrender, and even some say faith equals obedience, then how do I know when I've surrendered enough? How do I know when I've committed enough? And frankly, if we examine our lives, we find out that we're not totally committed. We're not totally surrendered. God shows us every day that we're not. And therefore, if a if, if person begins to commit their, um, question their commitment, We undermine what? Their assurance. Am I really saved? And you take the Lordship view of repentance. Repentance is just a hatred of sin. It's an about face. It's a change in conduct. Then you have a friend like mine who writes this letter and says, I'm not sure that I can remember all my sins or I'm sorry enough for my sins or I've completely changed all my ways. Am I saved? Am I fully submitted? Am I fully surrendered? Have I really believed? But see, the Bible never has us questioning our faith or having faith in our faith. And that's basically what I think Lordship Salvation is asking us to do, is have faith in your faith. Examine the kind of faith. When I read the Bible, there's only one kind of faith, and it's not qualified. You Either believe or you don't. And the reason for that is because we're not to have faith in our faith, we're to have faith in Jesus. And as long as we have faith in Jesus, we're safe. When we start having trying to have faith in our faith, we have problems. There's a story of a man, uh, and I think believe I, I picked this up as a true story, a man whose pastor would tell him uh, that, hey, you need to believe in Jesus. And the man remained an unbeliever for a, a long time. And then a preacher came through one day and he preached a message and uh, the man Believe in Jesus as a Savior. And the pastor was a little frustrated said, what did he say different that I haven't said? I've been telling you all along you need to believe in Jesus. He said, well, pastor, here's what I heard from you. You need to believe in Jesus. Here's what I heard from him. You need to believe in Jesus. You see, it's all the difference in the world. Our faith is in the objective lordship of Jesus Christ, who is God and therefore could become our Savior. And there's nothing we bring to the table. That's what grace is all about. It's We don't bargain with our surrender or our commitment or our turning from our evil deeds. We just receive what he has given to us because he is God. And he came to us as savior. And then he wants us to live for him as our Lord and master. And that's what the Christian life is all about. Thank you for listening. For more resources,